Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by renowned futurist Peter Leiden, who is a former editor at Wired Magazine, the founder of reInvent, and a sought-after consultant and keynote speaker. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to be with you guys. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you focus on today? Well, I started out as a journalist uh, and was recruited in the early, very early days uh, of Wired Magazine, a founding team of uh, Wired. I was not a founder, but was recruited by the founders to actually come out to uh, San Francisco in the early to mid 90s uh, and really started getting my head into the future. I mean, Wired was obviously always about new technologies, but it really thought of itself as a magazine of the future. So we spent a lot of time doing things beyond technology and thinking out far uh, long-term. Um, I ended up running that magazine in the heyday and then uh, moved on from there. But I, I had a series of um, startups, media startups off of that. I mean, Wired was also an early kind of inventor of the early online media uh, of the web. Uh, people don't really realize that. but And from that, uh, I've had a couple of my own startups. I've done a political startup on top of it. I, I've just kind of reinvented myself about every five years is sort of the next big, big thing. Uh, alongside that, though, I've been also um, uh, writing my own pieces. I've written a couple of books on the future. I've spent a lot of time uh, as a keynote speaker, spending a lot of time in this country and also in Europe quite a bit. Helping people understand uh, kind of the sweet spot for me is about 10 to 30 years out. Uh, That's kind of where I focus on in terms of what's possible. Beyond that, I I love to speculate and think about it, but it often gets uh, more difficult to kind of really lay out things. And so I've uh, and then my latest bit of work here, I've just finished a project that I've been working on for about two years now year and a half, uh, maybe year and a half, which is really starting to think rigorously about the next 30 years. And I published a series of six stories about the next 30 years in Medium called The Transformation, a very positive but plausible look ahead at what we could expect to come here. I'm doing a lot of talks now, just starting to build off uh, that new body of work. So you've uh, you've kind of been a student of the publishing world and the written word, and you've watched that evolve. Um, it, so what what kind of things were surprising you along the way? Because there there had to be a few things that that caught you off guard. Well, I started yeah, just given all given my age and everything here. Um, you know, I started in the world of old media. You know, a, a newspaper, magazine. I worked for Newsweek. I was a foreign correspondent in Asia. Um, also worked for some newspapers in the in the in the um, uh, United States, various things. Um, and so when I first came into Wired, uh, we really were opening up 
the whole new world of of new media. And I'll, I've, it's been a hell of a journey. I mean, watching that thing transform. I mean, a lot of it was predicted and and kind of understood by the early folks like myself in those '90s, and, and maybe yourself as well, uh, looking ahead. Um, but what I did not foresee was how. What I saw is a generally democratizing, decentralized, and generally positive um, development in in the uh, in media. Uh, I was not anticipating how uh, that could get out of control in the last five years or so, uh, and, and really lead to a lot of the kind of uh, difficulties in online media, but also a lot of the tech lash. It, it later uh, kind of really contributed to people's kind of really. Uh, having a hard time with really the, the, the technology companies behind it. So that was something that really did surprise me. Like a lot of folks from back in the day, uh, particularly in the 90s, we, we did not foresee how that would, you know, was really going to play out in that way. So anyhow, we got a little, lot of reworking to do right now. And I think um, that's the process we're going through right now. Yeah. Do you see the uh, some sort of a global authority that's going to try to regulate this? Um, there, there's been a lot of talk about that. Yeah. There, well, I think there's a bunch of things. And I, in my latest work, I was trying to actually look out in, in a positive stare of how this could develop. I think one way that's going to happen is there's going to be essentially a certain um, uh, that the, the infrastructure of the Internet is essentially going to be seen as utility at some level over the next 10 years. And I think a lot of the platforms that control it now as private entities are essentially going to at least the core businesses that have to do with those utility functions like, you know, um, I mean, basic things like search or basic things like just, uh, you know, connecting up to basic information that I think they will be quite heavily regulated. Maybe heavily is the wrong word, but much more regulated than they are now. Let's put it that way, because uh, they're seen as essential services and there will have to be something beyond the kind of whim of a founder or even a kind of a company's board or whatever to decide these things. I think that it will take on a more public kind of oversight. Uh, I don't know if it'll be global at that level of centralization, but I do think there's going to be a public oversight in that. I also think some of those core companies that will essentially spin off their more innovative pieces of the company. And so places like Google and and others will, uh, the utility side of the company will be kind of a boring place to be just like, you know, electrical electrical utilities now or telephone utilities are kind of boring at some levels. They'll let go of that piece and then the kind of more innovative folks will move off into the next big AIs or the, you know, quantum computing and other things that'll happen. So they're going to probably evolve in that direction. So yes, I do think there'll be oversight. I don't think it'll be too centralized in terms of a global perspective, possibly by country and uh, maybe some kind of coordination at a global level. But, but at right now, it's, uh, something's got to be done. And I think it's, it's, uh, we're in the process of seeing it. It's kind of interesting to watch it morph right in front of our eyes. I, I find that interesting. So what, what are the pieces of evidence that lead you to believe that this trend is unfolding, that, that more and more people are going to consider search engines or the basic infrastructure of the Internet as a public utility and that governments are going to take over regulating it? I mean, you, you hear that, but I'm just curious, is, do you see actual steps being taken in that direction? Well, let me, let's just put it in a little more strategic context. One way to think of it is 
the next 10 years, we're going to watch about the second half of the planet get pulled online. So in the next 10 years, by 2030, essentially every human being or close to it with kind of some maybe pockets of real dire poverty or something will have access to, you know, at that time, you know, what we think of now as, as high bandwidth connections, it'll be 5G-ish kind of uh, things. We see all the different low level, you know, low orbit satellites going out, all the different things that are happening now. There's about 60, you could say, pushing it, maybe get 55 to 60% of the, of, of the world now is online, more like 55. But think about the next 10 years and you bring everybody else on. Um, uh, that is only going to exacerbate the current situation. I mean, in terms of nothing's done. So, so there's one level bigger way to step back and say, you know, if we think this is going to be a problem now, and also the people that are being pulled on now, uh, the next half are going to be not have the, they're not going to be the global knowledge workers and kind of upper, you know, well-educated folks. It's going to be, you know, a lot of just everybody is going to be on. And so I think that level of things is going to cause a level of problems that we got to just really get into this differently. One. And two, I just think in the pandemic's kind of shown it around the world as well is how it's absolutely essential. I mean, people have been talking about how the internet's essential for a while now but and and you can make an argument of it 10 years ago for that matter but it's only getting more and more central to everything now it's everything from education to healthcare to you know work and all that stuff and so i think once it gets that fundamental i think uh it's it gets into the place that almost all societies get to is once something is so fundamental to the basics of your society roads and electricity and plumbing and all kinds of stuff like that it, it the the wide open businesses that pioneered those spaces get kind of controlled, usually in public utility ways or even taken over by governments because they're just become a thing that is not about entrepreneurial energy. It's more about just maintaining basic fundamental infrastructure. And I think we're in that place now watching that happen, which is why it's so interesting to watch now these startups that literally started you know, some of them, you know, Facebook's only about 15 years old, those kind of folks, you know, they, they really have no, they, they grew so fast and became so powerful so quickly that I think they had, they were born in this ethos of, well, we can do anything to now we're so fundamental to day-to-day -day life that something's got to happen. And so we're watching this kind of re new reality just go crashing down on everybody. And so I think in five years, certainly within 10 years, um, those, these issues won't be a the same issue. We won't be calling Mark Zuckerberg in for this. Or we won't be calling the Google guys in for that. It'll, it'll essentially that will have evolved the industries, the fundamental industries of these infrastructure industries. Um, and then, like I say, that the tech elite or the most innovative segments of those companies won't be sitting there worried about just the basic plumbing, but they will move on to the next level of space flights and all the other stuff that we're starting to see these these guys are to get into. So anyhow, I, it's just a process we're in the middle of. It. A lot of times, I think what I often do with my writing and my books and my speaking is just always pull back into a big picture look, try to understand the story of our times is more like a historical story told from, you know, 50 years out or even longer out. The way we look back on World War II or what happened, oh yeah, in the Great Depression, World War II, and after the war, we built the interstate highway system, and oh yeah, we did this and that. It's kind of seen now as just clear and obvious and makes total sense. And uh, and I think that's the way people will talk. So, so when you kind of adopt that framework, like what will people in 100 years, looking back 80 years on today, how will they explain what's going on? They'll say, oh, yeah, that's when the Internet got was young, it exploded. We brought another half of the world onto it. 
we had to really radically rethink it. It had to become more like a utility. And ultimately, the tech companies had to be shed, shed those, those kind of functions and move on to the next level of uh, innovative spaces, uh, which inevitably are opening up. Yeah, I know you've been doing a lot of work on uh, kind of the changing uh, demographics of the world. And, um, and uh, I just finished a column on, on the, the de-urbanization that got triggered with the COVID era. And we're seeing lots of people that are leaving the, the big cities and moving to other parts of the country in the, in the U.S. Um, I'm not sure how that's playing out in other countries, but um, it certainly, once we're, we're able to connect anywhere and do our work from home, uh, then paying high rent just to live in uh, San Francisco or New York or um, uh, some expensive real estate downtown wherever, um, people quickly realize that that's not necessary and they can live like a king in, in rural America or other rural parts of the world. Um, so I, I, I find this interesting as it's playing out. I, I don't know if this is a long-term trend or not. I, I just was wanting to kind of get your thoughts on how that's evolving. Well, I've two, there's two th main points I really make about this, which is they're, they're both interesting but very different, which is one thing about cities and pandemics over the millennia is everyone always counts, particularly during pandemics, cities empty out forever, and they always bounce back. And I do think there's something about human beings and the physical contact of being around people that will certainly always bring people into cities. Now, the question is, will they always want to go to the super cities, you know, the biggest cities? I think that trend also we're watching is a pretty interesting, consistent phenomena over the decade, over decade, over decade. So I think there's one thing is I think you never under underestimate humans need to physically connect. And I'll just say one thing, it boils down to three letter Three letters, you know, S-E-X is one of them. I mean, basically just humans <laughs> will always want to be around other humans and mostly because they want to have, you know, sex, basically. Humans but, do but like that. Physical, <laughs> physical interaction and connection. And I think as much as people have emptied out of cities right now in the pandemic, yeah, pandemic is like people are freaked out. But, you know, I think once it's safe or once you get past the vaccine or once this thing dies down, I think you're going to see a lot of migration back into cities uh, all over the country, but also even the super cities. Now, the question about the super cities or the, meaning these hubs that just the expenses get so astronomical and stuff, I do think that actually will adjust over time, particularly as we virtualize more and more things. And I think that's a good thing, honestly. I mean, I'm sitting here in San Francisco or the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was getting intolerable, you know, even for me, I'm a total booster. I love the area. I've been here for 25 years. And um, but, you know, it's just nothing. You know, you couldn't move in traffic. I mean, it just was it was just jammed. The prices were just nuts. Your kids couldn't even get, you know, apartments and stuff. And anyhow, it's just, it got to the point where it's just unbearable anyhow. So the point is, yeah, we don't need that incredible packing, which kind of was the thing that happened before. And it's awesome and wonderful that a lot of the industries now are spreading back into the heartland and all these other hubs are going on all over the place. I mean, 
Austin's booming. <laughs> There's now Miami's booming yeah. with tech stuff. I mean, you know, it's going in my, you know, I'm originally from Minneapolis. Minneapolis is booming. I mean, there's a lot of things going on all over, which is fantastic. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. And so there is a diffusion, but I would say never. Don't. Right now, the East Coast is having fun. They do it about every two years. Do a story about how uh, San Francisco is over, and it's uh, they do it every two years, and it never, you know, it, it, it it's it's just New York's way of kind of pounding on uh, San Francisco, but it's totally overblown. I mean, right now, honestly, the house prices are still astronomical because it's not like they're emptying out in any kind of serious way. It is taking the edge off the jamming, and it is making it more like a normal functioning city, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, with uh, with lots of countries having declining populations, we've we've been playing around with different scenarios, um, and the one the one that uh, I find real interesting is this idea that sometime within the next ten years, that uh, a lot of women who are pregnant will be able to go in and and get genetically enhanced uh, their their child, and. Um, and then that that child will grow up with. Uh, I mean, you have a checklist of attributes that you can pick from, and and then then you have a, a smarter, brighter, faster, stronger human that results from that. And and so then this this idea of creating an equation around the lifetime value of a superhuman, and how does that change the dynamics of society, and. Uh, willingness to have kids and and how the populations change and uh, and I, I see that countries will want to have uh, this goes back to kind of the World War II era where they were trying to have uh, a super elite race of people um, but uh, countries are going to want to have the most superhumans uh, in their in their citizenry and uh, so how do, how does something like that play out? Well, yeah, you're raising an interesting question. I mean, to put it in a little broader context, the way I've been thinking about this is the next. So so what's happening now, far from what everyone's, you know, wringing their hands around the gloom and doom and, you know, the economy's crashing and in some fundamental ways. And, oh, my God, the future is going to be bleak. I think my framing is that we're heading into three fundamental technology booms. One and I'm getting to your question here, but I want to put it in the broader context. One is essentially we're watching stage two, the second big stage of information technology, which is going to be AI and this ubiquitous connection around the world, which is going to bring in literally another three billion, three and a half billion people into the Internet. And with AI is going to basically allow simultaneous language translation, all kinds of stuff that will cross connect people and lead to all kinds of innovation. So that that's a total boom. You could think of it, a tech and an economic boom that's just starting to roll out. Second thing is the energy technology thing, which we you know can get into as we see, we know that that whole shift in the fundamental energy source of the planet over the next 30 years, that's going to lead to just crazy historical kind of growth in these new technologies, but also in this, in, in an economic sense. And the third area is, what is broadly thought of as biotech. And I think you're touching on the two fundamentals there is our genetic understanding and then our genetic manipulation or genetic engineering, biological. And it goes beyond genes. It's kind of um, biological engineering. We're essentially going to be able to engineer living things. Now, out of those three giant tech ways, which combined is going to just open up a crazy boom to period here, I think, in the next 30 years in general, um, the most 
different and the most challenging is that biotech space. And it's because we really have never faced up to the level of issues we're going to have to grapple with there. And you put your finger on one of the, the biggest ones, which is uh, we clearly know, you know, understand the genetic, the genome, the human genome, it's getting cheap enough. I mean, now it's under a thousand bucks for anyone to get it. And it's going to be nothing essentially by the end of the decade, everyone's going to have their genes. And now we know how to manipulate it with CRISPR and all the posts kind of work on that. So then the question is, how do we deal with that? Now you're kind of jumping ahead and saying, well, okay, there are going to be some nations that are going to go ahead of it. Uh, and, and get a kind of a jump on this and, and kind of manipulate it. I think this is going to be the really interesting question. Um, and I think the way I play out the next 30 years is I think there's going to be some kind of global accords um, around the use of essentially genetic engineering uh, applied to humans and probably applied also to other living things, but uh, that we're going to have to work out some general norms. And even though it's possible to do this stuff, I think humans have shown in the past we can actually agree on boundaries to what's possible. I mean, I give an example. I mean, one of the biggest fears is going to be about biological warfare and bioterrorism, right? And so one of the things driving this before it's going to be, hey, my kid's going to be smarter than yours in high school or something. That's that's a problem, but that's less of a problem than someone genetically engineering, you know, germs that, you know, will make this pandemic look like nothing. Um, and so it's going to put an insane amount of energy and focus uh, of the global community on how to deal with these boundaries. But in my, uh, I talked to a lot of biologists about this, a lot of geneticists about this in, in the work that I've been doing recently on this, uh, these projects. And um, there's some interesting analogies. For example, uh, after World War I uh, with the chemical warfare, I mean, chemical warfare is simple, relatively simple to make. I mean, it's just kind of like, oh, it's, you know, people say, well, it's so easy to kind of, you know, play with, you know, viruses in your basement on some basic, you know, bio biology kits. Right. Well, it's also easy to kind of make, uh, you know, nerve gas or something in, you know, out of basic, you know, uh, chemicals. And so it, there's not a reason to like, oh, it's so complicated, like nuclear, you know, engineering might be more complicated. But it was like we came to a consensus around uh, chemical weapons that has really helped uh, with a few exceptions, you know, um, Saddam Hussein was supposed to be developing them and a few things like that. We've basically spent 100 years with with that essentially locked down. And, uh, and no one's really broken that in any kind of serious way. And people don't really worry about that anymore. And, and I think it's a it's not exactly a parallel, but it's I think it gives me hope that I do think that there will be a particularly around the very dangerous edges of biological engineering, that we will make some kind of accords. And I think in the context of that, we will get to some of these issues that I think are less uh, threatening in terms of existential threatening, but it'll be related, which is, okay, well, if we're going to ban that and we're all going to agree to that, what are we going to do about enhancing humans? Or what are the limits of that? Or what's the boundaries of that? Or what's, uh, you know, what, what's the norm at some level? Now, that's not going to stop some rogue somebody from, you know, jacking up uh, 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 some people. Um, and so that's just the crazy future we're going to have to deal with, I think. But on the other hand, I think in general, society can deal with that knowledge and can evolve its kind of norms to actually deal with it. And so I'm less worried about that 
uh, after talking to a lot of biologists, honestly, then uh, and geneticists, than I am uh, when I started working on that project. But that's kind of where I am at. I'm, that's a debatable thing, and others got to have a strong opinion against that. But I'm generally more positive about that than others who are quite fearful. Yeah, w- w- one way in which I'd want to just push back a little bit on the the sanguine picture that you painted is that mm-hmm. the the example of chemical weapons is certainly instructive. And I'm always on the lookout for instances in which societies have managed to solve these thorny coordination problems because Mm -hmm. that's hopeful. And I want to better understand the mechanisms that allow us to come to those consensus Mm -hmm. uh, consensuses, because uh, there are so many problems that need to be solved in some sort of coordinated way. I, I think one distinguishing feature of the genetic enhancement technology is that there will be an almost unbelievable incentive to cheat on those accords. Because it isn't just the ability to kill people more effectively. It's being able to raise the baseline IQ in a society over a period of 20 or 30 years. And to do so in a very subtle sort of way. And, and if China is rolling technology like this out, like what are we going to do? Go over there and do genetic sequencing on, on random selections of their population? And, and if we agree to the accords and abide by them, and some other society doesn't, and it comes to be that the average IQ there is 160 or 170, then effectively the rest of us will be sitting on our asses looking up at the ceiling while they are inventing everything. The future will simply belong to them. And so I, I like the example that you used. And I I think it's worth studying similar episodes in history. But the incentive to cheat in this particular iteration of the prisoner's dilemma will be pretty overwhelming. And it's hard for me to believe that anybody will will maintain their their, the strictures they put in place. Uh, good point. Like I say, there's there's a robust debate here, and we could probably spend the podcast discussing this. But I will say one more analogy. I think is worth doing is which is, um, you know, when the, the early days of nuclear weapons, there was a similar kind of sense that we had no idea how to stop that contagion, and and people were absolutely convinced that we were going to blow ourselves to bit on you know all over the world. I mean, I I'm I'm old enough for I'm a boomer a young boomer, the back end boomer, but I can literally remember in grade school us going, you know, ducking under desks as though that was going to do anything about a nuclear bomb and stuff. I mean, we were terrified by this. And actually, if you talk to anybody at the time, you know, they were assuming, you know, American cities were going to get hit and this is how many and how, you know, could we deal with 100 million casualties? And anyhow, it's like that was the norm, right? And yet here we are. I mean, even though there's still a threat and, you know, we've got to think about that stuff. We figured that out. Now, at and all I'm saying is I'm not saying that's the exact same solution to figure that out yeah. because that was a different arms race and balance of power and all kind of stuff. But the point is they didn't have any idea how to solve that at the time. And they eventually solved it. And we've been able to maintain that kind of situation till now. Um, and the same thing with chemicals. So I'm just saying this is another level of complex problem that today on this podcast, we're probably not going to figure it out per se. But I think it, I'm encouraged that I think there are pathways forward that show promise. There's analogies of the past that are actually encouraging. And then what I'm kind of fighting against, not with you guys per se, but in general with my body of work, is there are so many people out there it's, to talking about the negative possibilities of the future and disaster scenarios and dystopias and, you know, oh, my God, we're doomed, doomed, doomed in a million ways, right? Because it's very easy to unwind and show how everything goes to hell. But the thing is, I'm just trying to push back and say, not again, not to you guys, but in general about the general thought like that, which is, 
yeah, we don't maybe know exactly now, but um, there's some ways to start moving. And I can imagine this and it's you know, like that. And so right. that's what I'm just putting to people now uh, a little bit of that. And I think, again, we can talk about 20 other examples like this, um, not about genetic engineering, but other things about the future. I think it's one of the problems about thinking about the future structurally, and you guys are the futurati, is it's a lot easier to understand how things could go to hell in the future than it is to understand how things could come together and be awesome in the future. I mean, at least in a plausible way. I mean, you can kind of say, oh, you know, the aliens will come and they'll save us, whatever. There's that level. But I'm just talking about it's just hard. As a guy who works a lot on scenarios and a lot about strategic planning and a lot of kind of, you know, thinking about foresight, um, you know, it's just hard to think through things. Uh, and one of the reasons for that, by the way, is, and I'm talking about this in this talk, I'm going to be doing at the long now, um, literally next week, um, is it's going to have a lot to do with the lessons, uh, what I've been learned over time about foresight and future thinking. Uh, and one of the things uh, I, which applies here is that the problem about envisioning the future in a positive way is that it's so dependent fundamentally on innovation and innovation by definition is doing things that we don't, we have never been done coming out of millions of different brains. And so one brain today thinking ahead over the next 30 years, which I just was doing, I, it's, it's impossible for me to project all the innovation that's going to come spewing out of, you know, all these things in the next 30 years to solve this stuff. But inevitably, it'll happen. Uh, not, not inevitably be positive, but there will be this t- insane amount of innovation. There's one little uh, anecdote I, I'll, I'll put to you guys. Is Brian Eno, 25 years ago, wrote uh, a book. Uh, it was a journal of, of its life. I don't know if you've, you uh, tracked it at the time, but he just reissued the book uh, this year. Um, and uh, uh, about it's this journal from 25 years ago. And what he did in the new issue is he had collected words that didn't exist, just words that didn't exist 25 years ago. And the list is an insane list. It exists hundreds and thousands. I think it was like a thousand some words. And every one of those words explains a thing that you couldn't have envisioned or even explained, let alone come up with the name for it 25 years ago. But now looking back on it, you look at them and say, oh, obviously all this stuff happened. And so it's kind of, again, a thing about looking forward is you can't anticipate and really the innovation. But when you look back in history, human ingenuity and human innovation solved so many problems that stymied us at the, in the past. And that over time, we look back and we say, oh, of course we solved that. Um, but looking forward, it's hard to see that kind of energy. And so you have to have a little bit more of a faith, essentially, that human ingenuity and human faith will essentially solve stuff. And so I have kind of two little lessons I just keep thinking about myself all the time is I think never underestimate the power of human ingenuity is one or in a human innovation. And also never underestimate the power of new tools or new technologies. That's the other thing I think we don't fully anticipate is how much you can leverage new tools to solve our current problems that stymie us. Like AI in 25 years, based on quantum computing or something, is going to be a tool that we can't even begin to think of what it's going to do half the time. But it might solve your problem about the human enhancement problem through something that we can't anticipate. Now, anyhow, I'm just kind of riffing now, but I'm just saying there's a lot of 
movement in the future here. New tools, human ingenuity, combine them. Who knows how we're going to solve it? But my gut feeling is we'll solve that, among others. Yeah, certainly one of the, the counter forces is we're creating more awareness of everything happening in the world. And so um, while, while we can definitely go off the rails and do uh, things where we're putting more and more power in the hands of an individual, um, the fact that we are now more aware of everything that everybody's doing um, is uh, it tends to dampen somebody's enthusiasm for um, uh, for being a radical. I mean, just even the idea of robbing a bank, uh, it's, it's uh, I mean, taking a gun and walking into a bank anymore. Nobody does that, hardly. <laughs> because of it. Well, that, that's the bank thing. But, you know, this is the other thing about, you know, we didn't really think about this when, you know, Jobs, you know, you know, invented the iPhone or something or however you want to think about that. Um, but, hey, when you put a camera that's easily accessible to every human or every American, let's just say, in this country um, or half the planet, and it can record video instantaneously and upload it to the net, it's like, wow, that solves a lot of problems. Like, you know, okay, who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? Well, you know, you don't have to, like, do shoe leather, you know, kind of start from scratch. You, just, you look at the video or something, you know, or, or like, you know, you know, all this issues around Black Lives Matter and, and things about, you know, uh, uh, you know, police abuses of, you know, African-Americans or, you know, they people have been saying this for a long time, but it was only like, boy, you got it on video. Multiple spaces is like it changes the the solution set of possible what you can do. And so I think there's just a lot of that stuff that we're just starting to sort through here now. Like what happens when you're living in a world that. uh you know, can pick up. And so it even gets back to your, you know, biological engineering thing. It's like, you know, we'll know who's biologic engineered. What if those people are shunned or what if those people are, you know, weirdly discriminated against in some way or what, you know, it's like, oh, there's a lot of double reverses on that, that it wouldn't automatically be that those people would be awesome in, in this great situation. They might be pariahs and completely, you know, it might be the opposite problem. It's like, how are we going to treat these poor people who are now can't, you know, even get a job or something? Anyhow, I'm just saying it's it's a crazy way, fluid situation that we don't really know how it's going to actually uh, play out. Yeah. So I wanted to get your thoughts on methodology because you're a futurist, Thomas is a futurist. And in the discussion that, that we just had about the difficulty in predicting how things are going to unfold, there were two issues that I felt like you were highlighting. The, the first is mm -hmm. that it's much easier to game out scenarios in which everything goes wrong for mm -hmm. the same reason that there's lots of ways for a pile of glass to be a pile of glass, but fewer ways for it to be a plate or a cup. And then also it's extraordinarily difficult to forecast innovation and to figure out the different ways in which people will solve problems or use tools creatively. So I'm just wondering how you get any purchase on this task at all. Uh, how do you track different trends? How do you single out which ones you think are going to be the most consequential? How do you think about the ways they interact? Um, yeah, just walk me through your process for that. Okay, and it actually there's my latest project, this transformation series, which is, you can see it as my next book, essentially, but at this stage, it's, uh, you know, a series of six stories out there, about 25,000 words. Um, what I basically distill, well, well, let me let me step back to this another way, is my first book based, uh, it started in a cover story in Wired in the mid-90s called The Long Boom, and it was essentially a story of the future history of the world um, 
it's actually started from 1980 to 2020, but I was writing this in, let's say, 95. So in the middle of that period, and I had 25 years ahead of me. And it was a cover story in Wired, very influential at the time, and made people think differently about what could play out in those next 25 years. It became a book, went into many languages. Um, and, and so anyhow, and I've been, I spoke about around that for many years after that. Anyhow, the point being is, here it's 2020, right? And so I, what really, uh, and I want, I look, went back into the work I'd done before and said, okay, well, what had worked, what was accurate and what wasn't accurate. So it's an interesting little device that actually could actually make me, because I, I was the guy who wrote it and, and, and reported it. Uh, I had a co-author, by the way, Peter Schwartz. So, uh, but I was basically wrote it. And, and, and so in this project, um, on my own, I said, well, let's, I'm going to do the same process going off to 20, 30 years to 2050. And I was essentially going to, going to learn from that last process. So long and short of it is what did I learn? One of the things that was interesting about the last piece, the book, and you think of this stories I did, um, was that the general technology, the general technology trajectories and the general economic through lines basically were accurate and held. So, for example, if you started in the mid '90s, there was literally you know 25 million Americans online, basically. Um, in, in and essentially now it's four billion, right? Well, in the mid '90s, we were thinking, okay, yeah, it seems small, and uh, you know most people are barely getting on the email, and they don't even know what the heck it is, and what's the internet, what's the web, and stuff. But if but we could see how that could play out. Now, we didn't know exactly how it was going to play out, but you could say it's probably going to get like this and pretty soon everyone will be on and ultimately it'll go through some wireless thing and it will kind of be on your phone and, you know, something comparable to that. And, and you know, you could kind of see the through line. Well, in fact, totally played out. You could also tell other things. Well, if all these booming tech sectors are going to happen, then it's probably going to drive productivity in the economy and the economy will grow. And, anyhow, we could probably have some economic boom and since there's no borders in this situation, it's probably going to be a global boom. And anyhow, you can play that thing out. And, you know, you look at the economic numbers over the last 25 years, and it kind of pretty much played out. Well, China, okay, what's kind of China? Well, China had a, was only a trillion-dollar economy in the mid-'90s, right? And it's now about $14, 15000000000000 right? And, and so we said, well, you know, given where they are and what they're trying to do and bringing all these people off of poverty and from the peasants into the cities, and, you know, I bet they're going to become a superpower, and they'll be maybe even challenging the United States in 25 years. Anyhow, you can kind of... Lay that out, making it happen, right? So there's a lot of through lines into this thing. The things that get trickier was we threw things into the original uh, piece, like, well, you know, we're going to go back to Mars. Or so we thought we'd, we'd get back into space and go into Mars. Well, that was a political decision that had to do a lot with a lot of things. You know, was that inevitable? No, but it was kind of a storytelling device. So we tried to figure out, well, you know, there would be genetic breakthroughs, but, you know, maybe we'd solve, you know, a quarter of diseases. Anyhow, we were making some estimates on things that were got more specific. Those were harder. Or we thought fuel cell technology was going to be a bigger deal in alternative energy than, in fact, it turned out to be. And uh, anyhow, there's, there's misses you can get, but there's general through lines. So the long and short of it, I'm saying, is what I did in this project was I came up with about a dozen what I call the inexorables, as in inexorable, not inevitable, but inexorable. And then I think you can actually think about the future. Uh, you can distill these inexorables. Now, some of them are technology inexorables. I mentioned some already earlier in this, you know, the information technology boom, the biotech boom, and the energy boom. That's just going to happen. It's, you know, it'll get shaped or go slower or faster. But in general, those are inexorable things that are going to happen. 
and you can just count on them, right? There's also demographic things. We know that the boomer generation is literally going to die off of this period, and you know, the millennials and the Gen Zs are going to basically take over, and they're going to drag stuff. So you can see, well, what are those younger generations interested in? Well, they're much more interested in racial diversity and inequality. It's climate change and so you know and what were the boomers all obsessed with you know more other you know, individualistic kind of things and you know climate denial and you know a bunch of stuff that you know is going to go stage left off and so you can kind of actually play with these experts okay that's probably going to happen in politics and anyhow you can kind of go through a bunch of them. i came up with about a dozen that affect america uh in the next 30 years and i actually came up with about uh maybe half a dozen or uh for globally and it if you actually take them in motion and kind of play them out and then you start to see how they could interact. Okay. Well, that generation is going to be in political power. They're totally into climate change. The energy technology has taken off. The solar is ready to scale. It's cheaper than carbon. And you can play these things off and say, yeah, it's credible. In the next 30 years, we're going to transition off carbon into, into clean energy. Anyhow, there's, there's ways to play it out, and does it take 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whatever. There's some debate on the timing, but the general thrust of that story is is there, barring a wild card or barring some crazy disaster. So anyhow, there is a way to think about that. What is the hardest thing to predict, but not impossible, is politics, I would say. Uh, and politics in the broader sense, meaning, you know, it's we could not foresee that some Middle East terrorists were going to drive a plane into the World Trade Center and send the United States into two wars in the Middle East, sitting there in 1997 writing that. Like, you know, you could maybe say there'd be some terrorism, but you couldn't anticipate that we put a $2 trillion into a war that lasted 20 years in the Middle East. Or that it would be, you know, the presidency would be run by George Bush and Cheney and whatever they made these decisions. So, so there's a lot of wild cards around uh, political decisions in the broadest sense. Humans doing crazy stuff in the political and social space, but uh, but other stuff that you can actually hang on to. And I think that's the missing piece that people underestimate, which is so because a lot of people say, ah, there's no way you can predict the future. Period. Not true, actually. You know, for example, right now the population in the United States is 335 million people. You know what generations there are. You just push them out 20, 30 years. And those millennials that are 39 now are going to be 59, you know, in 20 years, you know, and what happens when you're 59? You're, you know, running companies and blah, blah, blah. What happens with those Gen Zers who are just coming on? Oh, they'll be having families in 20 years. Anyhow, it's, it's a, there is ways to game out the future and act in ways that really help you think strategically about what's coming. And accurately. I'm reminded years ago of of when I did a a Da Vinci Institute interview with Robin Hanson, the futurist and economist at George Mason University. Mm -hmm. And we spoke for like two hours. But one of the things that really stuck out to me was I asked him a, a similar question. And his answer, in essence, was something like, well, find trends and assume they'll continue because they usually do, right? And eventually this will go off the rails, but for the most part, whatever is currently happening is a trend will probably continue to happen. And if you just assume that, you can do a lot better than other people in trying to prognosticate. Uh, That still leaves the question of how you find the trends. Like, so do you have some methodology for figuring out what what you just said um, with respect to how demographics change or uh, what the younger generations prioritize uh, compared to older generations? I, I do. Um, and I, uh, 
one of the things that happened to me after I worked at Wired Magazine, I, I went to a thing called Global Business Network, which was a um, a futures think tank. Think of it as a strategy consulting firm that was uh, founded by, among other people, Stuart Brand, who's kind of was a kind of a legendary future and a guy creator of the whole earth catalog and a bunch of things. Um, he's, he's really an American original in many ways. Anyhow, I worked very closely with him um, for four years at this global business network. And uh, one of the things that it, it was called global business network. And why was it called network? The net, because the, the methodology that GBN used and that Stuart essentially perfected Stuart brand was uh, you have to, to identify a network of what he called remarkable people. He, there's others in this space that, that also focus on this. And remar the, the reason they use this kind of amorphous word, remarkable people, is there is a group of people that I've come to understand. It's kind of you know them when you see them. But essentially, it's uh, they're innovators. They're usually experts in a space, but they're innovators and they are forward thinkers and they tend to think uh, about the future more rigorously and more consistently than, than other experts. So there's experts like a lot of academics, for example, are experts in their fields, but they're thinking backwards or they're I meaning into the past or they're kind of uh, they're not thinking innovatively into the future. And so let's say out of 100 experts, there's maybe 10 of them or something that would fit this category of looking forward. Anyhow, if you identify these people over time, and some of them who are really good are, are well known, and you kind of keep going back to them, there's a way you can stitch together essentially a network of minds, of creative minds, innovative minds that help you envision the future. And what it really does is sniff out kind of your question that you're asking, is they are the ones that normally tell you what... Um, or give you a hunch. They say, I saw something like this happening. It's not been really remarked on, or I haven't seen articles on this, but this seems to be something that's interesting and I would look closer at. Or they'd have maybe look closer and they'd give you some idea, but you know, whatever. Or maybe there is an article or two and you know, they connect the dots on them and they'd say, you know, if I were you, I'd be thinking about this. You know, the long and short of it is like the way you kind of triangulate on what's important and what's emergent that's really worth watching is essentially through networking. I mean, you guys are, your podcast is a good example. It's like, you know, now you've got me coming in and I'm telling you everything I know. And, you know, you get someone else next week and, you know, but over the course of a year, you're getting all these like people out there looking at a million things, right? And pretty soon you can actually triangulate and say, well, you know, I saw this pattern going on with these three people kept talking about this thing and those six were related to it. And anyhow, you, you pick it up, the signals through the noise. And that's the second methodology I use. So, so in the, I use it's an exorable thing. That's usually often based on data or, 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 you know, information and stuff that you can get through other secondary sources and stuff. But this is essentially through interviews. And so my entire career from a journalism, but also all through my futurism years of the last 25 years is I've almost always had a, something like you guys, like a, uh, I, I often have an event series where I'm interviewing people or I'm hosting or I have a round table series or I, if it's online, I pioneered uh, some of the early roundtables and video and various things with my last company, reInvent. I'm always picking the brains of everybody and uh, if making money off it somehow. you got to always figure out a way to, to get money on it. But basically, uh, the, 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 the Uber effort is to kind of stitch together insights from many different people and many different sources. Um, and when you get someone who's great, like this is why I've mentioned to you how I was listening to your um, uh, David Brin uh, podcast earlier. 
that had been previous to the to me here a few months ago. But um, you know, he's one of those gems. Like you, you, you eventually identify who the gems are, and you can kind of go back to them too. And so there's just a kind of a thing. And you say, well, how, what fits the category, and how do you really identify them? It's, it's again, it's a kind of you know it when you see it thing. And but uh, but if you get enough of those over the course of a lifetime, uh, which I've been fortunate to do, uh, it really is helpful in understanding uh, what's coming next. And and what I do actually in my career, let's put it this way, is uh, I tend to then, whether it's through speaking, I do a lot of kind of keynote speaking or through, you know, talking to senior executives or leaders or is is essentially distill those insights and, and synthesize them and kind of make them understandable to other people. Uh, who would be up to their eyeballs. So, so this last series that he's did of 25 um, or, or of these six stories was based on in-depth interviews with at least with 25 core ones. Um, and instead of those, a senior exec talking to 25 people like that for two to three hours each, um, they listened to me for 45 minutes, kind of distilled down what I'm learning. And do, 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 do. anyhow, there, there's a translation factor for a guy like me and, and, and maybe you're uh, you guys are maybe the same in, in that way. But anyhow, there, there's a function for the distillation, synthesis, and communication thing, which is kind of where I come. But the method is to tap into this diverse set of, uh, and, and diverse, meaning very diverse, very different, very innovative brains. Yeah, so you're counting on a kind of a remarkable people network. And um, yes, that's... Uh, um, not one of the formal methodologies that typically gets listed, but uh, I, it makes perfect sense, though. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of um, a quote from Peter Thiel where he says that he doesn't do productivity systems. He just wakes up and talks to the most interesting people that he can all day long, and then billions of dollars come out of that. Of course, he's brilliant as well, but it really helps if you can just, yeah, regularly pick the brains of really smart people. Yeah, right. no, and, 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 and literally, I started as a journalist, but... If you really go into my history, um, I've always been a very gregarious guy and super curious about a million things. And so, like, when I was a young kid, I used to do a ton of hitchhiking. I mean, when I talk about hitchhiking, I'd, like, hitchhike, like, 50,000 miles. I once added it up in, you know, all the United States and in Latin America and Europe. I, I hitchhiked from one end of, you know, the tip of Europe to all the way to the tip of uh, Cape Town once. You know, that took me about a year. But basically, oh my God. It, 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 was, it was essentially – well, I say this because – one of the things I just found is you can jump into any car or any truck or whatever it is. And uh, it's just amazing how if you just start asking anybody a question, just start getting them to talk about themselves. And you just you and you can jump into any random car. And you, I would just talk to everybody. I would talk to them for eight hours, you know, however long the trip was, you know, cross country trip. You know, you go on for days sometimes, but you just keep asking them questions and people will just answer them. And as a young journalist, I used to remember this too. Is this astounding? You can walk into any you know crime scene or whatever. You go walk into the neighbor's house or something. Just ask, start asking questions. People will tell you always. I mean, it's amazing what people will do. So it's just tapping into that method of uh, extract idea extraction. If if you get good at it, you you can. Um, and I've been out it for my entire life now. Um, it, 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 it isn't a formal thing. The way you just said is not your type formal foresight tool but honestly it's the best method from my point of view and it uh it really uh so so it's been of, central to the way i do things so one of the uh the ideas i've been focused on a lot lately is that with with covid we have a lot of people that are unemployed 
and underemployed. And countries are going to want to figure out some way to put these people back to, back to work because we don't want a lot mm -hmm. of people just sitting around. And so the idea of taking on mega projects and investing in big overarching, whether it's infrastructure or um, or space tourism, or there's there's lots of different directions we can go with this. But the idea of mega projects seems to be um, it seems to be kind of floating out there in the thinking of a lot of people at the moment. Um, I'm not sure anybody's figured out quite how to ground it in a way that makes good sense, but it seems like that might be a logical direction we're headed. I was wondering if you had uh, any thoughts on, on that as a possible direction. I, I think you're totally right about this. And, and, and let me give you my hand on this. Um, here, here's the way I think about it. When I told you that politics what I told you about how predicting politics is usually the, the, the difficult thing to actually predict. Um, that is true in terms of individual decisions or, you know, a piece of legislation or all that kind of stuff. So in that, in that respect, it, it's hard. But I will say this is politics like uh, is this, you can analyze it and there are patterns in politics big picture pa uh, patterns in politics that work over a historical long period of time that uh, gives you insight into the general thrust of what will happen in a different particular era. Now, I'll give you one example. When I was a young kid, uh, I was fascinated by this thing. Um, it was Arthur Schlesinger Jr. basically come up with the concept of the political cycles uh, of American history. And uh, and I have watched, so I've been fascinated by this since I was a young man, but um, not just his specific way, because he had a specific way of thinking about these cycles. I think of these cycles as a little different than him. But in general, you can analyze American history um, in uh, a series of, I would call them closer to 40-year cycles uh, that, that essentially are built on the rise of new coalitions of interest and that are also uh, based on generational change, the rise of a young generation and the falling of a, of a different generation. And these things, for whatever reason, just, they, they roughly tend to be about a 40-year cycle. And I'll give you an example of how this works. And the reason I'm kind of saying this, it, it has a point, because it's it's about what we're entering a new cycle right now, is the way to, is the punchline. But I'm going to tell you exactly how this works. So, for example, the, the last big, what we would call a progressive, uh, and, and by the way, it's a pendulum swing between uh, conservative eras and progressive eras. And these two eras have a very kind of basic uh, kind of structure of, of their politics, which is uh, po progressive politics is usually based on more uh, broadcast populist or people-oriented kind of policies. Uh, uh, conservative ones a little bit more on business and elite kind of things. Uh, the progressives are more worried about kind of collective good and the others are more individual freedom. The conservative eras are more individual freedom. Anyhow, we can kind of see these characteristics of these cycles. The last big progressive one was came off of the Great Depression, World War II. That was the great, you know, post-war boom. And that was the, the GI generation. What's the greatest generation? It's the FDR. You know, it was the beginning with the SDR and it's rolled through to the great society of the 60s. Anyhow, people understand that and they see what the politics was. There. That was generally progressive. Conservatives were kind of even even kind of people that call themselves conservatives are still playing in this general framework of a progressive big government investing in infrastructure, a lot of the characteristics of these periods um, played out there. 
Then we watched in this country the next, and that was a 40 year period from the 30s through the, through the 70s. Then you basically got the 80s through the last, we're just ending it now in 2020. We had about a 40 year run here, started with Ronald Reagan, clearly a conservative. And it's basically the whole era has been shaped by a more conservative politics, not just in the Republican Party, but even the Democrats kind of play within a conservative playbook, tax cuts and keeping government small and and, uh, individual freedom is huge and that kind of stuff. Anyhow, I would argue that we've kind of watched the end of that. Trump was kind of the last kind of stage of that era. Uh, and I think what you're starting to see, I would argue, is essentially the beginning of another cycle. And uh, it's not necessarily like a guy like Biden is going to lead the way as the kind of guy because he's too old in a way. But, you know, he's starting to shift big governments coming back, investing in infrastructure, mega projects, the way you're describing climate change, these things that are structuring. He's starting to talk about it in his administration. But I think it goes way beyond that. I'm just saying it's more rooted in the millennial generation who's now 39 and under to 26 or so and the g uh the gen z's that are also kind of aligned with them they're into climate change big projects inequality racial inequities they're all aligned in this stuff and they're ascendant they're kind of getting to the point where they're going to be the ballast in politics and in where the society's going so i would argue that we're heading and this is again another thing i'm laying out in the next 30 years here beside these technology booms and beside of where i'm kind of lining all this stuff I think you're going to have a different attitude towards government intervention and driving changes, uh, mega projects, uh, not all about governments, not just government builds everything, but essentially you're going to see a a different attitude towards um, a more transformative change, basically. And that's one of the reasons I call the thing, my, my series is called The Transformation, is I actually think we're heading to not just another triple whammy tech boom, not just another meta economic boom in the next 30 years. But I think we're going to go into more of a societal transformation. I think it's going to be a lot of changes around these issues of, you know, genetic engineering and things are going to be part of that. But I think what we're watching is, I think in the by 2050, in the next 30 years, we will look back and we will say, oh my God, what we've been through uh, was much more transformative era than we've been through in, let's say, in the last 40 years uh, ourselves. Even though a lot of changes have happened, the next 40 are going to be a lot more. Uh, and uh, and one of the things is going to be, it's going to be a different kind of politics that's going to drive a different kind of more directed uh, transformative change, including mega projects. So I'm completely with you. I think it's totally happening. You're already starting to watch it happen. But uh, that is... And people listen to think about the future. It's a guy like me and you guys, you know, we're thinking about the future all the time, right? Most people don't fucking think about the future. It's like they have no way, they have no idea how to think about the future. So they always think, well, whatever's happening now is going to keep happening. And in fact, you can say, but someone who's been thinking like me about this, you know, is like, no, we're about to move into a very different kind of period here. And uh, it's got all these analogies of the past, but it's like, get ready for a very different thing. And so I think the 2020s are going to be, oh, I think it's going to be like the roaring 20s. I think we're going to see a crazy amount of stuff happening here uh, coming off this pandemic, but also moving in uh, over the next 30 years. Uh, and we're, we're, it's going to be a, a delightful time. But uh, in many ways, it'll also be traumatizing because people are not going to be ready, I think, for some of the changes we're going to be forced on this action in the next 30 years. Well, fantastic. Uh, we're coming up on the end of our time here. I wanted to ask you just by way of closing, given that you are 
far more sanguine about the future than most of the people commenting on it. Mm-hmm. Could you just briefly tell us what it is that makes you hopeful? What is it that makes me hopeful? Yes. Well, I've, a lot of this whole hour we've been talking about here, is I've been telling you things that make me hopeful. But I, I think that the attitude is this, which is, here's a, the bigger way to think about this, which is humans have been wired from the beginning to hear every rustle in the bush is a danger. And so we essentially, the minute, it's been a survival instinct to focus on immediate danger and freak out and do something. And the people that freaked out about that rustle in the bushes, you know, five times out of, you know, six, it was nothing. It was a breeze, you know? And so the guy was ignoring the, the rustle doesn't, you know, does fine. But, you know, that one time it's the lion and that one who freaked out essentially survived. And that person gave birth to the next generation and taught their kids to like listen to the rustle. Anyhow, we've essentially bred a species that is constantly freaking out about the rustle in the bushes, which is the latest tweet, the latest, you know, news report, the latest, whatever it is. And that's how we're wired. It turns out that even though that's how we're wired, that's not really an accurate way to understand the history of humans. Is It has been, from my way of seeing things, an almost unremitting story of progress. Now, granted, it's backwards. You know, we get setbacks and there's wars and there's these things. But in general, particularly in the last few hundred years, it is undeniable that there has just been an upward trajectory of general society and that you would be insane as a person, at least in the United States, say you would rather live in any other period of time. I mean, even back 40 years, if you're a woman or a person, you know, gay person, you're like, would you want to live today or would you want to live 40 years ago? And it, would you want to live if, you know, it, you know, anyhow, you can just go back. And there's a million ways to just say we have been living on an upward trajectory of progress forever, I would say. But essentially, certainly in the last 20 years, it's been unmistakable. And so when we look into the next 40 to 50 to 80 years, to me, there's absolutely no reason to think we're not going to see the continuation of progress. And I think it's the only thing that or one of the main reasons we're not seeing that is this wiring problem. And so I spending my life or my career is trying to get people to to, to contain that anxiety and ignore the rustle for a minute and just open their mind to thinking, you know what? If you look back, look where we've come. We're going to go forward and look where we could go here. And if people can wrap their head around that, and I can just give them an hour of talk or uh, whatever, a book or a read or whatever they can read of my stuff, and they think, you know, there might be something there. That to me is, is progress. And that is a thing that I think we can go from. And so, yes, I am really bullish on the future. I'm very positive, but I'm not super, you know, Pollyannish about it. I'm just, I think, more accurately looking ahead than most people, uh, than most people do, just because they're wired to freak out about everything. And um, I'm not. <laughs> so that's, uh, well, that's why I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but I'm not just hopeful. I'm very confident that humans are going to solve climate change, solve the evolution of kind of global capitalism in a much more equal kind of solve the gross inequality of, of economics, ultimately deal with even racial inequities. And uh, we'll certainly get beyond this pandemic. I mean, anyhow, we're on a road to a much better future and uh, people should really wrap their heads around that now. 
Well, that is a fantastic and upbeat note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Yeah, that's quite remarkable. I really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us. This is uh, quite remarkable. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you guys, and uh, maybe we'll do it again in this sometime. But yeah. uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks, Peter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>